0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Okay, we are going to talk about Wills in just a moment. But first, shout out to Andre de winning a gold medal for Canada. Just came in first in the 200-meter race. It was fantastic. Oh, so excited for him. Um, I'd love to see that. Let's uh, go to our Raji Sohal this morning. Raji, that's exciting. It's so exciting. I've already rewatched it. Me too. Five times. <laughs> he really booked it. Like he was like, it was great. It was just fantastic. You could tease, he put it into high gear and he went, what is it about uh, like field, like track and field races that are just so exciting to watch? That they're short. Ah! Oh, maybe the ones that I watch are 100 meter, 200 meter, right? That's like, boom, over, done. It's true. I can commit to watching those and
2: like the relays. (laughs) I don't need to watch any marathon
1: results. That's funny. Okay. So true. So yes, congrats to Andre uh, de Grasse on that one, the gold medal. Uh, Let's talk about wills. Now I had promoted this a couple of minutes ago, Raji, and somebody wrote me to ask, well, what is an active will? So An active will, I'm assuming, is like when you've actually done this will, you've filed and you have filed the paperwork as opposed to having it and it's just kind of sitting in your drawer. This one is on file. It is legal. It is registered.
2: It's registered. It's signed. It's been witnessed. And it's current. So if your financials have changed, if you, have for example, had more kids, but that's not reflected in that will either, then it wouldn't be active.
1: Right. It's got to be pertinent that makes sense.
2: to your current situation. Okay,
1: that makes sense. And this morning we are talking about this new Angus Reid poll that shows 40% of BC parents are anxious about traveling with their kids post-COVID. And one of the reasons why is many of them are thinking about actually having their wills done for the first time.
2: Exactly. Simi, this is one of those cases in which I have to read something many times over because I just saw parents, anxious kids, and I was like, yeah,
1: looks about right <laughs> to me. Because <laughs> you're like, been there, done that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. BC parents were found to be the most anxious of any Canadian parents, any of the other provinces in this category in the survey. I have to say I wasn't surprised by the findings of this uh, survey around wills. Because it actually, you know, for myself, early pandemic, there was all this talk about illness and what happens for people if, you know, one partner or a parent, even a single parent becomes, you know, incapacitated, intubated, uh, is separated from loved ones. And so I was suddenly hearing from people around me, other parents, that they were talking about wills. And it made me realize that I needed to update mine because I was actually in that category of had another child and it wasn't reflected in a will. And so this totally hit me. I was Mm -hmm. having conversations with family members about, you know, what would we do in terms of guardianship because that had changed for me as well. So if I had two kids, would I pass the kids on to the same person I had identified initially or would actually two kids be overwhelming for them? And so should we be considering going to just a a different guardian?
1: That's fascinating to me. I've had this conversation with so many of my cousins because they had children after me. So their kids are much younger than mine. Uh, And it's always fascinating because like, did you and your husband agree on who you wanted the children to go to? Because sometimes that's a difficult discussion.
2: Yes, I mean, we did agree. We agreed right away. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's apparently one of the most contentious issues. Yes, the most like it's really high on the list that parents um, often disagree in their wills about whom the children should go to.
1: It's really interesting. I can hear that. Like like I say, I have a lot of cousins and the, the running joke in the family is that I'm actually the guardian in the will for about five of them. (laughs) <laughs> so, because I it turns out that I was like the compromise candidate, I was the one that they could, in some cases, agree on. So I was, I was like, okay, sure. And so there was a time there, and I think it's still the case because they're all still minor kids. But I've got about four or five different cousins who named me on there, and I was like, well, that's that would make life interesting. But yes, it, it is difficult sometimes for a couple to say because that's a huge decision you're making, right?
2: When oh, you, it is. And a lot of people have a difficult time even just launching into this conversation in the first place. I talked to Erin Burry. She's the CEO of Willful Wills. It's like a turbo tax for estate planning where you can do it online. And she elaborated on several things, including that just these conversations are are kind of overwhelming for people.
3: About 40% don't have um, a will at all. And the rest do have a will, but it's out of date. And parents specifically are the ones that really need to keep them up to date, adding guardians for kids and adding new children as they're born. So uh, all that to say, the majority of Canadians, unfortunately, haven't prioritized creating a will. Why is that, do you think? I think it's really overwhelming to create a will because you know people tend to be scared of lawyers, both their fees and also the legalese that goes along with the the conversations. And we don't really learn a lot about estate planning. I mean, I'm sure you didn't learn about it in school growing up. It's not really a dinner table conversation. And so uh, there, it, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about what's involved. People think it's really you know, complex and they need to have all these financial statements, when in reality, it's a pretty simple legal document that uh, can take as little as 20 minutes if you use a platform like Willful.
2: So Simi, a lot of people are turning to these digital wills because with a will, you have to have you know two people present for the signing normally. And these have to be two people who don't benefit from the contents of the will, which right. is even more awkward because like, you don't want to share that information with other people. You want to keep that as private as oh. possible.
1: Also, I'm thinking you have to ask people, listen, I'm not giving you anything. Can you just stand here while I sign this? Like, that's, <laughs> That just seems kind of awkward.
2: <laughs> there is that too. And then some people find it awkward to find that they're not the guardian. I, unlike you, you may be the named legal guardian for eight of your nieces and nephews, but I am the secondary choice for just as many. So,
1: that right? Was kind of awkward for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not your for. Oh, second choice. Okay, sure. That's good. Uh, okay. Okay. I, I'm okay with. And that. you're like, well, what? Can I just ask? What stopped me from being number one? Did you ask that question? <laughs>
2: I came close to it. And I just famed uh, being honored instead for <laughs> being number two. Hey, silver something, isn't it? Right. Um, well, Bill 21 passed in BC. We're lucky for that because before when you had to sign a will in person with physical paper and pen, old school, this is going to allow for a digital will. And this actually came
3: out of COVID. A lot of governments across Canada put emergency measures in place to try to help with that, temporarily allowing for things like virtual witnessing of wills. But BC is really the only province that's put this permanent digital-focused legislation into effect, and we're really hoping that other provinces follow suit.
1: Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So it, we're making it easier than ever. So I guess there's no excuse for us, then, Raji, to get this done.
2: Yeah, there really isn't any more, especially that it's so much more affordable to do it digitally. And you can also, uh, with some of these apps, including this one, Willful Wills, you can actually make the changes uh w- without an extra fee, too. So that's pretty incredible. Um, They make it easy. And, you know, we got to all adult up and have these very difficult conversations. We hate talking about death, near death plans and that kind of thing. But we we really got to make it a part of, yeah, actually just our our regular conversations. Like these are conversations we need to be having.
1: Do, Do they suggest how often you should update it? Because I know, especially when you've got young children, you should probably update it every couple of years, right?
2: Yeah. She said even annually, like things might change for you annually. And I know that over COVID, a lot of my friends, almost all of the people that I talked to about wills, uh, told me that they had made several changes over COVID. That circumstances changed with work or with assets, with financials, with guardianship, Um, and so that was kind of a kick in the pants to me because I thought, okay, yeah, if I'm not having any more kids, maybe I leave this thing alone. But uh, no, you need to stay on top of it. Makes sense.
1: Okay, that's that's I feel like the a big thing for a lot of people because it's hard enough, according to the survey, to get people to actually make an up to date will, but then to do it like every year, every couple of years. Like, I remember the first time we ever made one was, once again, kids were very, very young, and we were about Mm -hmm. to take just a brief trip without them. And, of course, that prompted a, well, we better have our wills in order before we do this. So put the wills in order, and then I think years and years went by before we updated it. So that's a scary thought. Yeah,
2: and I'm guessing that you didn't use an app, right? No, hello. I'm old, Raji. It
1: was a long time ago. That was before all of this was available.
2: (laughs) for me it's like just the mere mention of a lawyer and i'm out of there right so for me just like hey 20 minutes on an app like this is very easy to do and then also it instigated some conversations that we probably should have already had my husband and i but we hadn't Hmm. so so I feel like that's really important, and then also with this uh, this survey made me think about the fact that I haven't made any plans to travel without my or hus- uh, without my children, and to travel with just my husband. I
1: thought, hmm, puts that on the table yeah, too. I should start. I think think you should start about thinking about that. that. That is good advice.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So New York City is going to become the first major U.S. city to require proof of vaccination for customers and staff at restaurants, gyms, uh, you know, theaters, you name it. And that's because they are battling, of course, this fourth wave with the Delta variant, particularly in the United States, and they have some lagging vaccination rates. But this has become a question for us here in Canada, too, as more and more businesses decide they want their customers to have proof of vaccination because they want certainty. They want to know that they can stay open safely because opening and closing and opening and closing, well, costs them a lot of money. So is this going to potentially become more of a trend? Well, joining us to talk more about this now is Anita Hupperman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thanks for being here.
4: Good morning, Simi.
1: Now, what do you think about this? Because on the one hand, you've got like, A city government saying this is required, but in many other situations, it's businesses who are taking this step.
4: Well, the Surrey Board of Trade, uh, alongside our National Chamber of Commerce and even the Ontario Chamber, we issued a statement for a harmonized Canadian-wide Approach around a proof of immunization to access businesses, venues, live music concerts, at least for the short term, in light of all of this uncertainty with the variants, and to ensure that we don't have another economic shutdown. Uh certainly, um, you know, we want a harmonized approach. It needs to be mandated uh, by uh, either, uh, you know, the federal health officer and, of course, in concert with provincial health officers. And so, uh, you know, we're supportive of this approach that is uh, happening in New York, for example, and in some parts of San Francisco even.
1: So uh, just a week ago, I know that your organization was also called, like, we're calling for vaccine passports, but what has the reaction been like, Anita, since you've been speaking out about this?
4: It's been mixed, and uh, it's been mixed uh, for our colleagues in Ontario as well. Um, certainly, you know, we're looking at this uh, from a perspective of, we've never been in a situation ever before, Simi, and we don't want another economic shutdown. We need a harmonized approach at least for the short term, uh, for COVID-19 proof of immunization. We've also been receiving, uh, you know, threats, uh, uh, you know, uh, people have been swearing at us, sending us emails, voicemails. Uh, It's um, been really troubling uh, this past week and a half.
1: That's scary. So all because you said, hey, businesses need some certainty and what like people feel threatened by that. They don't want to be required to show this. It's a combination
4: of two things. Number one, you can't they're saying you can't force me to get vaccinated or um, I don't want to show my uh, passport indicating my health records um, or they're referring to history related to the Holocaust. You're going to divide and segregate the community. Um, And then, you know, some have been even more threatening, uh, some of these emails. It really is an organized group approach uh, that's been taking place uh, this past week and a half.
1: Wow, okay, that is some scary stuff then. So how how are businesses going to navigate this, Anita? Because this seems very tricky.
4: Well, I mean, uh, we were the first organization to ask the provincial health officer to issue a health order on masks. Uh, to give employers, you know, that support that they needed to say, you know, this is the law. We need you to wear a mask inside our business. Uh, It's just not a recommendation. The same thing needs to happen with this related to proof of immunization at least for the next six months to a year Uh, because we don't know what the fall is going to hold. We don't know what the variants are going to be. We see rising cases. And um, we're all in this together. There's no reason why we need to be nasty uh, to each other. Uh, and we need to take care of each other. And what vaccination and full immunization, two doses does. It's protecting yourself and each other.
1: Uh, it, it must be, you know, when you consider what happened in Fraser Health, right, over the past year, there were outbreaks. It was leading in the number of cases, things, are they getting better there?
4: It's getting better, certainly. Uh, it's been certainly a collaborative approach uh, with Dr. Victoria Lee, uh, the CEO of Fraser Health. Uh, Fraser Health is a huge region, uh, the, the largest uh, in British Columbia. But now we're also seeing rising cases in the Okanagan, uh, in the north uh, part of British Columbia. But uh, it is getting better, yes, in Surrey. And, and if you know, semi uh, was at ground zero as it relates to rising COVID cases, and the only way to do that, uh, to reduce it, was that collaborative approach of communication, encouraging others to get vaccinated, and then of course, fully immunize the two doses.
1: Do you think people are getting the message? I know, like there was a lot of uptake. There was a lot of concentration on Fraser Health to get people vaccinated. Do you think that made the difference?
4: It really did make the difference, but now the message is get your second dose, Uh, you know, when you you are able to uh, within that time allowance, and uh, that messaging, that consistency needs to continue until, uh, because there are many that still don't believe in vaccination, so we have to get uh, that message out to as many people as possible. It's very disheartening, uh, to be honest.
1: I was going to say, you must know that firsthand because you've been getting the emails from people.
4: Yes, and the voicemails and the phone
1: calls. Does it surprise you? You know, we hear stories, we read stories. I certainly get it, but in this job, you know, you're kind of, you're used to it at this point. But for you, was that the first time that it happened that you thought, what is going on here?
4: Well, I mean, uh, we're a public stakeholder and uh, there are many contentious issues that we advocate for. So this is not the first time that we've been in this situation but this is an unprecedented situation where healthcare, business, government are so intricately linked. And this is the future of our economy. This is the future of families, jobs uh, that we've been facing this past year and a half. It's Um, surprising in that light, but in some instances, not surprising because this is a new situation for so many. The vaccines are are new, Uh, but uh, this is the world working together on health technology, uh, which really has never been done before.
1: So true. Anita, thanks for your time this morning.
4: Thank you,
1: Simmy. Anita Haberman is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. So yes, they they like this idea of making sure people are vaccinated, but also the reaction to it. You know, businesses just want some certainty. They want to be able to stay open, and if you know, pro-business people who have businesses, it would behoove them to make sure people are vaccinated. But it's a tough one when you talk about the kind of abuse there. Anita said that uh, the organization has been getting as a result of their stand. April of 2021, that was the original date that we heard from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum about when Surrey police would have their boots on the ground and we would be transitioning out of the RCMP. Well, Obviously, that hasn't happened. They're in the process, but now there's a new date. The Surrey police chief, Norm Lipinski, says a group of 50 officers will be deployed alongside members of the Surrey RCMP on or before November 30th squeaking it in under the wire there for 2021. Let's talk more about that this morning with the help of our senior reporter, Janet Brown. Good morning, Janet.
5: Good morning, Simi. And yes, the big question has always been when will those boots be on the ground in the city of Surrey? When will we see officers out on the road? And now we have more of a timeline. As you say, the Surrey police service says it is aiming to have so-called boots on the ground By either November 30th or even earlier, Uh, Chief Norm Lipinski says a group of 50 officers will be deployed alongside members of the Surrey RCMP. So what exactly, Simi, does alongside members of the Surrey RCMP mean? I asked the Chief Norm Lipinski, does this mean that officers of the Surrey RCMP and the Surrey Police Service could be in the same vehicle at the same time? And what do you know? He said yes. Here's more of what he had to say.
6: Uh, It means a couple of things. So first of all, we haven't decided on what the actual model will look like, but uh, safe to say that the Surrey police officers uh, will be embedded into the fabric of the RCMP detachment. We are looking to put perhaps uh, about 40 police officers on the ground and about 10 Uh, investigators inside the investigative bureau. Uh, Those numbers will move up or down depending on what the need is. Uh, We are looking to having a training program for the SPS uh, to really apprise them of the policies and procedures of the RCMP and ensure that we are on the same page and then when our members uh, get out there, they will will be working side by side with the RCMP, and uh, in some cases, I'm not sure, but it could be right around in the same car for a period of time. Uh, what we'll do after that commences is closely watch and then alter or amend any uh, training issues, any uh, policy issues, any procedural issues, so Um, it's really sort of a soft launch because, uh, we have bigger things in mind for 2022.
1: Okay. So Janet, this sounds like they're going to be doing ride-alongs.
5: It certainly sounds like that is the plan right now. And whether the Surrey RCMP will agree to all of this, Ah. well, you know, that's another question. Uh, Mr. Lipinski said this full transition could take up to two years, So when you, when we talk about the Surrey RCMP equation, uh, not long after the Surrey Police Service put out that statement and release, the Surrey RCMP stepped up and said something. Actually, the RCMP's top cop in BC came out with a statement of his own. Dwayne McDonald, a very familiar voice on our station, he is the former officer in charge of the Surrey RCMP. He put out a statement to his members. We got our hands on it. Let me read some of it. It's very interesting, Simmy. He says, quote, he appreciates the stress and concern this transition is having on everyone at the Surrey RCMP detachment. That's what he put at the top of his statement. He said this deployment with Surrey police will be subject to a complete review to evaluate our processes and procedures and apply any lessons learned before we bring in any Surrey Police Service officers. He says the positions and duties have yet to be determined. He says these officers will be under the command and control of the RCMP. And he says a lot of work remains before the RCMP accepts these officers on or before November Hmm. 30th. And here's something really telling. At the end of his message, Simi, let me read you this. It's quite brief. He wraps up his message saying, The decision to move from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service is that of the city of Surrey, the province and the federal government, and one that we must respect. Hmm. I am confident that we have... Significant community support for the RCMP and appreciation for the excellent service that the RCMP provides in Surrey. However, he says at the end of the day, the decision to retain the RCMP as the service provider in the city of Surrey is not our
1: decision to make. Interesting. All right, Uh Janet, thank you for that update this morning.
5: Anytime, Simi. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, if you're like me, you were absolutely shocked when you heard about the story from Victoria Police over the weekend. They said that they had nabbed 24 impaired drivers in one roadblock in just a couple of hours, and that was over the long weekend. So this was on Saturday. Officers said that they had to close the roadblock an hour early because essentially they had busted so many people at this point that they had so much paperwork they were going to, they had to Process all those people, so they couldn't collect, you know, get more people off the road. Uh, they had so many vehicles that had been seized; no more tow trucks were available. That is shocking. I mean, have we forgotten what the rules are here? What, like, you don't drink and drive? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Grant Gutru, who's a forensic consultant and retired police corporal. Grant, thank you for joining us.
7: Oh, well, good morning, and thanks for having me on your show.
1: What did you think when you heard that?
7: Um, probably like most people dumbfounded. (laughs) I, 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 mind you, as I read it, it was over a Friday night and a Saturday night. There was 14 on the Friday night and then 12 on the Saturday night. But, uh, so still, Uh, but, but still, that's, that's, that's a pretty high, that's a pretty high number. I wonder what events were going on. I wonder, uh, you know, people have a tendency to, uh, turn their turn their brains off for some reason.
1: Do you think, Yeah, cause that's what I was wondering. Have we forgotten? Like, people are just happy to be going out and socializing, maybe going over to people's houses or whatever. And well, have we forgotten I, that we don't do this?
7: Yeah, I think I think that's a huge thing right there. I think you hit the nail on the head. We're in we're we're living in crazy times right now since last year, as you know, and um, people are just now that you know some of the uh, oh you know we can we can get back to. Living again and socializing and partying, then um, you know people are speeding more. <laughs> I see more and more people yakking on their cell phones when they're driving oh, than ever I before. S-
1: I see that too. You're right.
7: And 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 now you see people are just they're 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 drinking like it was the 1970s again. Because I remember you know back in the 70s when I was a kid, you know parents always came home drunk. Drunk driving was rampant back in the 70s. It was like everyone drank and drive. So it was like almost. Uh, normal practice and it's like, well, no, you know, we still have to remember that, yeah, while we're getting, you know, we're getting our lives back together. I'm using quotations, of course, air quotes. Um, we still have to uh, be responsible. We can't just, there's still laws out there.
1: Are there ways, do you think, that police can approach this then? Do police need to step up their public information campaigns, be more visible? Like all of those no. issues that you're talking about, What what can the police do?
7: Nothing. As long as people have free will, they're going to continue to speed, use your cell phones, drink and drive, um, you know, smoke, everything, you know, all the stuff that's, you know, either illegal or bad for you. As long as we have free will, people will still continue to do it. There's no amount of, um, well, I mean, look at the amount of vehicles I exp- impounded for excessive speed was over 2,100 uh, in my career. Once the excessive speed law came in, that didn't slow anybody down. You still have lots of speeders out there. You know, you, the police do the best job they can, but the amount, of, no amount of education, no amount of you know, is going to eradicate it.
1: So, the, how do we tackle this? It's so, who's going to remind people that stop doing this?
7: I think a lot of it has to come from um, peer pressure, family. Um, you know, the the. Uh, I'm not saying that the advertisement doesn't help when they show it on TV from man or whatnot, don't drink and drive, or or, or the police reminding you don't drink and drive, but there's too many people out there that just don't care. And uh, they always feel bad afterwards when they get caught, or afterwards when they, you know, get into a collision and hurt and kill someone, they always, oh, I feel bad, I shouldn't have done that. like, yeah, no. Yeah. Of course
1: you shouldn't have done it. It was a no-brainer, but... What, well, exactly. When you were, you know, policing, then Grant, like, you must have heard all the excuses.
7: Oh yeah, yeah. And back when I started um, a thousand years ago, (laughs) uh, we didn't have all these fancy devices. We didn't have an emergency, uh, the immediate roadside prohibition where you could just give someone a um, um, a thirty day and a ninety day uh, 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 driving prohibition and a thirty day impound roadside. And we didn't have a proof screening device back then either. So you and the impaired driver, we got way more impaired drivers back then than we do now. Right. I can tell you that much. So that's why the one the one that Victoria just had was like, wow, that harkens back to the old days.
1: That's, I think, probably what is eye opening, right, for the police, too. So as you said, though, it's been streamlined. We know now that, you know, it's easier for the police to hand out a 30 day prohibition or to impound a car for seven days and do all that. But yet it still seemed to overwhelm them, the number of people they needed to process.
7: Yeah, and we we had some of those when I worked at the Integrated Road Safety Unit. We'd have some of those nights where you know one officer had um, he had twelve by himself. So, you, you and that's generally you know it depends also where you set up, right? If you set up near a, a casino with your roadblock and they've got the you know the Neil Diamond uh, lookalike in and you know fish in a barrel. Six, well, exactly, you know, or if you set up in a in a high um, party right location when there's a lot of
1: this was victoria uh, and esquimalt though grant this was not, yeah. you would think well, not a huge high party area not a huge maybe, population
7: maybe they were having their one big weekend of the year i don't know i mean you're absolutely right the planets aligned and, and every idiot decided to hit the road that night and those two nights, obviously, on the island, and it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's fortunate that no one was injured or killed. I think that's outstanding work by the police. Yeah. But it's also, as a police officer, it's like, you're saddened by that because it's like, oh, come on, people, get a grip.
1: Yeah, so yeah, tell us about that then. So as a police officer, how disheartening is it when you do pull over so many people for something like impaired driving or texting while driving or speeding?
7: Well, part of the problem with impaired driving is is what, they, what the approved screening devices have allowed is allowed to, to the police, to, and they've been around since 1990 and B.C., to get those drivers that are showing minimal symptoms, but they're still over the legal limit. And a lot of times you don't know you're over the legal limit um, because you're like, oh, no, I feel fine.
1: Well, of course, but they talk them, everybody thinks that they feel fine.
7: Well, but as a police officer, you can go, okay, you're not, you're not fine because you're, you look like Foster Brooks. And anyone who's old knows who that is. <laughs> but um, it's those people that aren't used to drinking or they drink really good and, and they hide their symptoms really well. or The symptoms are really minimal and the approved screening device shows that actually you failed. And they're like, wow, I didn't know I was that. I didn't realize I was over the legal limit because I right. feel fine. And uh, so there's your hardcore textbook impaired driver. I'd be curious. And this is something that your um, station can do is i 'd be curious as to of all of those impaired drivers they got, how many did they actually take back to the office to 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 process criminally as opposed to just giving them an immediate right. roadside prohibition roadside so
1: how many because, were so far over the limit
7: yeah that's what i'd be curious to see because um, i'm just curious yeah, just to kind of get an idea of how many were were criminally impaired versus how many were, because that's important, because I want to know some of the numbers.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right about that. Well, we'll have to find out, but still, a lot of people. Grant, listen, thanks for your time. Yeah, way way too too many. many. Grant, thanks for your time.
7: And good job by the police. Yeah.
1: Uh, Thank you for your time this morning. That is Grant Gauter, who is a forensic consultant, retired police corporal, talking about uh, Victoria Police, saying that over the weekend, they essentially caught way more impaired drivers than they had been anticipating. We're talking, like, not huge communities here, right? We're talking Victoria, Esquimalt. Uh, 24 vehicles, impaired drivers seized, uh, the vehicles seized over the weekend crazy amount. So do you think Grant's right then? Is it up to us? I mean, police can still crack down, but people out there need to remember these are the rules, even though, you know, they feel like COVID is over and they're out socializing.
5: This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, today is walk-in Wednesday. What does that mean? We're going to find out right now as Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us. Good morning.
0: Good morning, Simi.
1: Okay, what is so significant about today?
0: Uh, Today, any vaccination clinic uh, in BC for COVID-19 vaccination, you can walk in, get your dose one without an appointment, without registration, without any, so like that. If you're um, uh, ready for your dose two, meaning you had your dose two, your first dose before June 16th or before, you can walk in and get your dose two. We're hoping that people across the province will uh, get involved in this, get vaccinated today raise those vaccination levels and um, uh, everywhere, and it's a great opportunity for everyone. This is going to be what we do from now on. We're changing strategies over the next little while and going to find people. So tomorrow, not walking Wednesday, we'll be at Kitts Beach, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Friday and Saturday at the Richmond Night Market, um, we're going to be doing different things in Metro Vancouver and everywhere in B.C., To raise immunization levels.
1: Okay, so do you think accessibility is the is the key now to getting more people vaccinated?
0: It's one of the keys. Uh, We're going to continue to give people more opportunities. I think it's true that in rural BC, for example, we've taken a sort of all of community approach. We go into a community for a couple of days, and sometimes people miss us in those days, and we need to get back to them, and that's what we're trying to do in rural communities, for example, and and we want to engage with people as well, answer their questions. So we're doing telephone town hall meetings all over the place, uh, Chilliwack last week, uh, in the north, in the interior, different places to get the message out that now um, now's the time to get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated before. We have one of the best programs in the world. 81.4% of people over, over 12 have been vaccinated. But uh, what we're seeing is that COVID-19, especially the Delta variant, uh, is... Um, is transmitting amongst people who are not vaccinated. And that's more often than not in the interior, especially right now, uh, younger people, meaning people younger than me, people under 50. Um, And uh, so we got to we got to deal with that by raising vaccination levels.
1: So when you talk about the Delta variant, I mean, we had our eye on this for a couple of months. Um, Are you worried about it the way it seems to have taken hold? And it does represent the majority of cases now?
0: Well, uh, the variants represent almost all the cases in BC. So they rep- either the alpha or the gamma variant, which was very prominent in the, in the you'll remember, the Whistler um, outbreak situation in Whistler uh, some months ago. So we're concerned with all of them. The, vi- the virus is mutating. These are not the last variants we're going to see either. We're going to see more. And so we see these variants in place. And uh, the Delta variant is having an effect on people. There is no question about that. And we see it particularly right now uh, in the Interior Health Authority amongst unvaccinated people. And so a lot of our focus is on getting people vaccinated. And in specific areas, we'll be changing our strategy and dealing with measures, for example, and we'll be targeting them at particular businesses or particular areas which are seeing problems. And that's what you see in the Kelowna area right now.
1: Right. When you say particular businesses, like, what do you mean then? So you'll be taking the vaccinations to them
0: no, and not, that's in the case of vaccination, so we'll be doing that, yes. But if there's transmission, for example, in a particular business, we'll be taking targeted action. That business is very likely to be shut down for a period while we deal with the, with the transmission there. As opposed to um, closing all businesses in the sector, we'll be focused on targeting on businesses where we see transmission.
1: Now, what did you think of what New York City announced yesterday, right? That they're requiring vaccinations if you want to do indoor activities. Go to the gym, go to a play, go to a restaurant. What do you think of that?
0: Well, I I would say this, that it's everyone's choice. Everyone's choice as to whether they get vaccinated or not. That's uh, the way it is. But you can't uh, necessarily do everything you want to do if you're not vaccinated. Uh, For example, no one's going to be able to travel internationally. It doesn't matter if they're going to Bellingham or whether they're going to Belgium uh, they're not going to be able to travel unless they get vaccinated, and that's uh, in terms of healthcare. It's our expectation that all healthcare workers will be vaccinated, right? And I think um, we're going to see more and more uh, businesses and other groups take measures to say, you know, we need vaccinated people in our establishment. So the message to people right now is: um, this is not. I'm not being critical. We're not. We're not targeting people. We're not blaming people. But there are opportunities today. To get vaccinated everywhere in BC. And with those opportunities uh, come other opportunities, the ability to do things that you may not be able to do if you're not vaccinated.
1: Has the healthcare situation uh, improved? Like, are more healthcare workers getting vaccinated? I know this is something that you and Dr. Henry had really emphasized the last couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, I, in terms of long term care, for example, more than 40,000 workers have been vaccinated, which is really a, a very high number. But, you know, there are still going to be long-term care homes which have lower levels than that, lower levels than what we want, which is basically 100%. So we're going to be focusing on that issue as well and are taking measures. And if, for example, people aren't vaccinated, there'll be a series of things they'll have to do, including um, more than twice a week testing, for example, uh, for COVID-19, including the wearing of PPE that other workers don't have to wear. So that's an example of the kind of action that... uh, Will be coming with respect to healthcare workers. I think healthcare workers like have been through the midst of this, and I expect that overwhelmingly they are vaccinated. And uh, those that are still not vaccinated will get vaccinated in the coming weeks. And we just have to engage with them and give them the opportunity to do that.
1: Well, today sounds like it would be a good day to do it. So thank you very much for your time. It's a
0: great day to do it. Walking Wednesday—it's for a health minister in a pandemic—better than Christmas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a new one. Okay, thank you very much for your time hey, on that. Take care, Simi. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister. It's Christmas for him, he said, for the health minister because it's walk-in Wednesday. So this means that if you had your first dose before June 16th and you haven't had your second one, today's a good day to get it because you can walk into any vaccination clinic And get your second shot. Or if you haven't even had the first one yet, maybe it was scheduling, a little hesitant, whatever the case may be, today's a good day to just kind of walk into any clinic if you've got five minutes and get that shot done uh, because it is walk-in Wednesday at any vaccination clinic anywhere in the province.